You're listening to the Bottom Line podcast where those living with or beyond bowel cancer, as well as health professionals involved in bowel cancer treatment and care, share their inspirational stories and lived experiences with host and bowel cancer survivor, Stephanie. Grief, it has no set pattern. It is intensely personal and affects everyone differently. On this episode of the Bottom Line podcast, we explore Michelle Chen's grieving experience, a very raw, honest, but also practical discussion around her journey since the loss of her husband, Sean, earlier this year. You may remember Michelle and Sean on our March podcast. Sean had young onset stage four bowel cancer. It was one of our most listened to episodes. Sean was so giving of his time. He was funny, warm, but most of all, frank. We had planned on doing another podcast with him. However, shortly after, Sean's health declined rapidly and he sadly passed away in April. When I asked Michelle if it was too early for her, too raw to discuss the grief she is feeling, she responded, Cancer is everywhere, it seems. It is in my personal life and professional life. I have accepted it as part of life. The loss I have suffered will not decrease any more today, tomorrow or next year. I will just grow with it. She says, I will always love Sean. The wound will always be a bit raw and that is okay. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us again on the Bottom Line podcast. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. It's a privilege and honour to be here. I just want to say before I start that my perspective and the lived experience will be different to all the listeners and my grief is unique to me, but it is still good to share that we're not alone in this. Yes, I think that's a really good point and and we'll go through that, that grief is a very personal journey and this is your journey. Firstly, though, I wanted to express, you know, my deepest condolences on the loss of Sean. He really was a truly remarkable human. I only spoke to him, you know, for, for an hour and I felt that warmth in in that very short time. How are you coping? Oh, thanks for those nice words. Sean was a very warm human being and he was there the day I met him when he was 22 years old. He's been warm ever since. How am I coping? I think I'm coping as well as I can be. And that means I've gotten out of bed, I go to work, I exercise, I eat food, and I only cried once today, which is true. (laughs) Um, I found his phone. I thought I had lost it and it was hidden in the couch cushion somewhere. It was a bit of a panic moment, but it's found. Good. And for other people, coping may look different to what my coping looks like. Currently, I cope by um, finding purpose and meaning in my life and my work. And I exercise, especially outdoors. And I think that's really important. I'm making new connections and forging a life apart from Sean, but, um, you know, his life is within me, Um, just forging new connections. And I also find purpose in helping others on their journey. It's difficult for anyone, but as you already said, you know, it's a personal journey and people cope in very different ways. They talk about the stages of grief, and I might point out to the listeners, I've had my own grief uh, 30-odd years ago when my mother passed away of ovarian cancer. It's early days for you, but what emotions have you been experiencing? I think throughout Sean's 
16 months of cancer battle, I've done a lot of anticipatory grieving. And, yeah, it's something I had absolutely no control over. It's just something my mind, whether or not it was trying to protect itself, it just went there. And that meant that I worked through the stages of grief or being in disbelief, anger at the cancer, and in denial that it was real, but being quite a literal person, a very scientific person, I knew it was real and I would look over the histologies and the imaging scan to really force my mind to come to terms with it. And through that anticipatory grieving process, I've had the opportunity to unpack a lot of my feelings with my psychologist. And in these sessions, I have gone through rehearsing his inevitable demise, given that it is stage four, is an aggressive BRAF mutation. It has metastasized to his retroperitoneal lymph nodes, which from experience is tiger country for an operation and no one would touch it. Mm. So in that span of time, I, I've done that kind of work. It's not to say that I did not have hope and hope was ever present throughout that that time and I, I still have that hope and I, somehow I'm just wired this way to hope for a better future, to hope for some meaning from this. During this time of the 16 month, we, we held each other through each devastating blow of progression and temporary success of his initial Four Fox regimen and then the Beacon doublet. This emotional roller coaster has filled me with anxiety. So I was actually really relieved in a really strange way when Sean passed. I was relieved that he was no longer suffering, that I was no longer waiting for the pin to drop to signal that death has arrived. Death has come, been, and now Sean is gone. Now, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's Five Stages of Grief is quite popular and it's almost people cite it like it's a stepwise fashion approach to grief. There'll be denial, there'll be anger, there'll be bargaining, depression, and eventually acceptance. However, we're human beings with complex emotions and experiences, and those sequential stages don't necessarily happen in exactly that order, in my experience. I was going to say that. Do they happen in that order? <laughs> no, I think, I think people sort of look at it and go, yeah, I've made it through the stages of grief you know, maybe I'm okay. So chronologically, I'm still in the early stages of grief. My profound loss is constantly being reminded by anything, everything, and everywhere. However, I have accepted my new reality, which isn't the last step of the Kubler-Ross model. Am I okay to move on with my shiny new life now since I'm at this last stage? Of course not. <laughs> I've accepted that this love we share comes from from loss, always has. However, in my mind, I had another 50 years of loving him. If his grandparents are anything to go by, they're in their late 80s mm. on a farm in New Zealand. And I feel very real sense of something missing every day. It's very visceral and ever-present. I'm sure with the loss of your mum, you would mm. sometimes you just have something and you just want to share with them or saw something amazing. You're like, oh, i got to let them know. And then you're like, oh, well. Oh, wait, they're not, they're not here. It still happens, Michelle, you know, 30 odd years. Just outside the window here, there is some arum lilies, white arum lilies, and they were her favourite lily. And this time of year they flower. And I 
often think that's her. And last year in lockdown, it was like her coming to be a beacon of hope for me. And we're back in lockdown and the lilies have come out. So <laughs> they're always there. And I often want to have a chat with her about things. Yeah. And, and I do find myself, you know, not crazy or anything. I do talk to him out loud in my home when I'm by myself. And that's not crazy. I think that's normal. I think that's normal. Like you, you just want to feel your person around. I find loss is an extension of love, the love that we've shared in our partnership and the life that we've lived. I would recommend anyone who's going through grief to first see their GP for mental health care plan, which entitles to six sessions of seeing a psychologist on a Medicare subsidised basis. I don't think some people realise that either, Michelle, that you can have those six sessions. Yeah, six sessions. And with the new COVID funding, they've opened an additional six after your six sessions. So both GP and psychologists play a vital role in this coping stage, no matter where along the trajectory you are. Yes, I agree. And even if you're just being a care partner for someone, that in itself is a psychological toll. Having been through it, that anxiety is like, I've never been an anxious person. I've always been a very controlled, headstrong, ambitious lady, like I know what I'm doing. And to suddenly be hit with this overwhelming anxiety and power crying in my car, like it's just, it's life. But it also given me so much more perspective to be able to relate to my patients. And I'm not exactly in, in complete understanding of your grief and your situation, but I have an understanding. And that is an important takeaway lesson for me. You, you can talk with real lived experience and connect on a different level with your patients. Yeah, I, I have found that. And, and I think I'll touch on that maybe a little bit later. Yeah. So those initial days following the passing of a loved one can often be a real blur. Can you recall any of those moments or feelings? And have you got some advice for others that might be going through that particular stage, that initial stage? Oh, man, the grief brain is real. Hey, if I was <laughs> to note down every day what happened, I wouldn't be able to tell you. But I would say initially I felt relieved mm. that it's over. And can I just touch on that, Michelle, because I think that people, I felt that as well with my mum when she passed, I felt this sense of relief. And then I felt this sense of guilt that I was relieved oh. because I shouldn't be feeling that. But it is quite normal. Mm, it is totally normal to, to feel relieved. And the guilt, here's the thing that Sean's always talking about guilt, that it, it is not really a productive feeling. Like it. You, and, and we often inflict that upon ourselves. Like we take it up and feel like they're, they're dead. So I should be really, really sad and I should really just act sad all the time. But that's not how life works. So I, I believe that Sean wanted me to be happy. And he actually said that explicitly to me. And every time I get too sad or feeling really guilty, I can just hear his voice going, what are you doing? You're wasting your life on these feelings that, will not get you anywhere, will not make you a better person. You are allowed to be joyous and hopeful and do whatever it is that make you happy. It's your responsibility to yourself to make sure, you know, to be happy. And that doesn't mean happy all the time. It means no, allowing yourself no. to feel the joy because life is miraculous. It is filled with ups and downs and we got to 
hold on to the joys that we find. Next thing I felt is I was numb. So that meant that everyone's issue in other people's lives pales in comparison to what I'm going through. I went through a period of not really caring or taking on people's problems and emotions. I was very selfish in guarding my emotional reserve. During this time, I was fortunate enough that my work let me have leave whatever I need. Mm-hmm. And I stayed home. I did crafts. I kept busy. I think I made two pairs of pants, a skirt, a jacket. I needed a blanket. Um, I cooked a lot. Is there anything you can't do, Michelle? <laughs> You're an overachiever. <laughs> yeah, I, I just like keeping busy and learning new skills. I got out in the garden. And also during this time as a family, we sort of talked about how to hold his memorial and what what we like to incorporate into the ceremony because he died during the last lockdown in Queensland. We're waiting for the lockdown to end so we can hold a memorial. So we sort of planned it in hope that it will happen. Mm. I couldn't sleep very well during this time. I would say it was mostly just getting sleep but not the best quality of sleep and just feeling really tired and having a lot of energy at the same time. So I felt restless but fatigued mentally. And then, yeah, it was a it was a strange time. Yes. Now, before Sean passed away, I was researching some resources about grief. And one of the books I came across was by a psychologist, Dr. Megan Devine in the US. She wrote a book called It's Okay Not to Be Okay. And she created a website called Refuge in Grief. In there, she's actually on the website when you first get on it, it's got a section that says, I'm grieving. I'm caring for someone who's grieving and you can go into your respective sections. And it had an infographic titled Rules at Impact. And it really is a straightforward list of stuff to do, which include just, just basic daily tasks, like maybe getting out of bed, maybe not. Don't power cry in the car because you might crash the car. <laughs> Eat something care for something, get out in nature, and just the basic things. In that early stage of grief, if you're able to do those little basic things, it's a win. Mm. So just having that list taped to my pantry door, I handed it out to the whole family and we've all had it taped in our room. Just every day get up, look at that list and go, you know, there's some things I can do, even when it feels living life is impossible without Mm. Sean. And for our listeners, we will put this on the website as well, some of your fabulous resources so they don't have to be frantically writing this down. Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll put it all in one neat place. Absolutely. So what other things have helped you cope with grief? I think social connection is one of the things I really appreciate and that means getting out and meeting different people despite the times. Mm -hmm. I exercise regularly. I During Sean's whole battle, I ran every other day and on weekends I run a bit further and I have a running buddy on the weekend and super social. We would usually gossip about things, we'd motivate each other. We would, you know, yell and scream in the woods when we go on the trails, just (laughs) bring a little spark of joy into our lives. And another thing 
that helped me cope with grief was actually keep talking about Sean. So talking about our life, the memories that we had together and, and our life that was. And I remember saying that they said, you die twice, once when your heart stops and the second time when no one speaks your name. Oh. So I get to keep Sean alive as long as I keep talking about him. And I'm sure you keep your mum alive by talking about your mum and wonder, you know, if she would love this or what she would think. Because I think there is this stigma that, oh, they're dead, you shouldn't talk about them. Oh, that, that would make someone sad or make the situation awkward. It's like, come on, this is a significant person in my life and if you want to make it awkward, you can. <laughs> you don't have to, though. And just because they're no longer physically with you, they're with you, as you said, in your heart constantly. I found that um, I lived in a small country town and I was quite young. I lost my mum when I was 21. And some people see me walking down the street and, you know, it was a town of 2,000 people, so not many, and they would actively go across the other side of the street simply so they didn't have to speak to me. I found that really quite hurtful in a way because um, they just assumed I didn't want to talk about it or they didn't want to talk about it, one or the other. I think death is one of those things where some people, it, it may be really challenging for people to realise their own mortality and to actually confront that. Oh, maybe it's scary for them like to realise, hey, if that can happen to someone else, maybe it can happen to me too. And to actually sort of wrap your brain around that can be confronting and also I think culturally we'll also maybe feel like you can't what can you say to someone yes should I say anything at all and then you overthink it and then you're like no no just avoid it so I can totally understand why people as a ghost and just move on but I, I hope I hope people, as we explore this further, will gain some understanding. There are some things you can say and do to someone that's grieving. Um, last thing I just want to touch on is gratitude. So yes. I would say I am very grateful for the life that Sean and I have lived and the life that I have right now, despite him not being here. Through, through our marriage, I know how it feels to, to be fulfilled, what it's like to love somebody, and to have the knowledge that every day is an opportunity to choose. And that's the power to choose to be happy is, is the power that we all hold. Every day when you wake up in the morning, you've got that choice. Surely the situation and the life events that happen to you is out of your control, but you have a choice of your mindset. And, and that can that in turn can affect how you present to the world and how you see a situation. And, and I, I guard that carefully because Sean was so mindful of his approach. Every day when he woke up, sure, it's it's a terrible, you can see it as a terrible nightmare to wake up to. You can say, hey, I'm still alive. Today's another day where I can make meaningful connections with people, enjoy the sunshine and be with my family. And, and I, I've taken that forward with me and and I'll have it for the rest of my life because yeah it's a it's a hard-earned lesson I just want to say it's okay if you get up in the morning and it's a crappy day you don't want to get up and and everything just seems too much lie in bed it's perfectly okay you don't have to have this sunny attitude all the time no one is like that but I just I just remind myself every now and then you know it's okay to lie in scroll Facebook feel a bit sad that's okay but yeah, I do remind myself that I do have the power to choose. 
a common myth is that you get over grief. The reality is that grief is always a part of you. And when you lose a loved one, you know, that just doesn't go away. As I've mentioned, you know, around my mother, your situation is far more raw and it's often hard to make sense of some of these feelings. And Sean was so very young. Anger is part of that process. Can you tell us about how this impacted you? And, you know, you've touched on being on a number of emotions, but did did you ever get really angry? I only remember getting really angry once. And um, I I went for a drive yelling and wailing in my car with the music turned up <laughs> and I parked in some suburban street and just looked like a just isolated suburban street and just really like power cried and screamed in my car. And then I came home to Sean who sort of comforted me and said, you know, I know you're angry. You're not angry at me. You're angry at the cancer. And I was like, yeah, I'm angry at the cancer. Yeah, we've never really thought that it's a it's a useful emotion. Suddenly it's like a little guide on how you feel about a situation, wanting you there's confidence and opportunity for you to inquire within yourself why you feel that way. But it's never one to give into and it's never one to draw on when you're trying to make decisions in life. So we didn't really have that too much in our lives. And in his honour, I have not wasted too much time in sipping in anger. Um, yeah, we're just compatible like that in our lives that's wonderful to hear I probably probably on the other hand are more on the angry side occasionally <laughs> in some ways I think it's healthy I wish I could do that I just can't <laughs> my husband's the calm one in our family as this indicates you know people react very differently some people like people around others want to grieve alone and as we've touched on people are often scared to reach out not because I don't think they don't care but it's just because they just don't know what to do what advice would you give our listeners if they have someone going through a loss I would say if you feel like texting them and letting them know that you're thinking of them just do it if you're not sure text and ask and then do it. Mm. People are grieving, but they're still very much alive and like to be involved in other people's lives, activities, events. So, so do reach out. I still get texts and funny memes and messages of cute things all the time from people who have been following our journey since Sean's diagnosis from all the places that we have lived, like all over Australia and, and New Zealand and the world, I still get those texts saying, I'm thinking of you. I, you know, I thought you might like this funny video about a platypus baby, like just something to let me know they're thinking of me. And I would put a little life hard. I don't necessarily always like feel like I need to write a text back, but just knowing that someone is, is thinking of me, makes me feel less lonely in this world. And now being by myself, yeah, I do get lonely. And having these little trickles of care and thoughts makes me feel less so. Oh, good. Now, I also am just going to introduce another great resource, um, the American writer Nora McEnany. Um, she wrote a short and humorous book titled I think quite funnily, and um, it's called Hot Young Widows Club. And this is after the death of her 35-year-old husband, Aaron, to brain cancer. She's also presented a TED Talk about grief, and I definitely think it's a worthy watch. So we'll include that 
in the resources. In the book, in her introduction, she mentioned that this book is for anyone who has ever loved or is currently loving someone. And she reminds readers that tragedy will strike. It's not a matter of if, but when. So learn about grief and and sort of touch on it, slowly approach it or nibble at it while you're happy and rational. Um, so for general advice, in Chapter 3, she outlines the traditional ways of showing you care, which involves sending a card. I've got plenty of cards. I've, in fact, got behind me a shelf of just cards, and some of them are biodegradable with seeds that grow flowers. I'm waiting for it to warm up, and then I'm going to sow the seeds, grow oh, some flowers. I love that idea, and I love a card. You know, I make my son write cards all the time because that art of writing and receiving It's so wonderful. Yeah. And bring food or send food. I have had friends and one of my old chemistry teachers from high school, she sent me a a voucher for um, like, I think it was HelloFresh. And we've had, you know, food boxes of fruit and veggies sent to our place. So it's it's quite good. When you're sad, you don't really want to think about food. So it's bring food, send food, drop off food. Yep. And a simple thing to do is go to the memorial funeral. If you can't be, be there in person because of COVID times, joining online and maybe send a message to the family about you being there and what you thought of the memorial and your your message to the family. I think that's that's sort of basic things you can do Mm. now if you want to be extra extra considerate in chapter five of a book there's a list called easy ways to be a decent human being to a grieving person Ah. (laughs) she outlines technical ways to well actually that's retitled that it's easy ways to be decent to a grieving person (laughs) and the practical ways to approach the long game so you've got the initial grief and then you've got the long game which is the months perhaps years after. Mm -hmm. And that means things like remember anniversaries and reach out during those dates. So if you're a Google calendar person, put it in your calendar. Say the dead person's name, don't avoid it. Keep them alive in conversation. And that harks back to my quote from before. And remember that it's not about you, quote unquote. When the grieving person has unexpected emotional reactions, not showed up on agreed times, be understanding. Grieving brains are real thing and strong emotions can strike any time. And for some people, actually for a lot of people, that sometimes will not change for a lifetime. So be a bit understanding. Small gestures of kindness, food drops, flowers, showing up to invite them for a walk, donate to a charity in their name, etc. And lastly, and this one does apply to a lot of younger widow and widowers, is an invitation to a wedding. Lots of people would avoid inviting a young widowed person to weddings because they feel like it's too awkward. If you're not sure, ask, because they're still alive. They still want to celebrate your nuptials and it just feels weird to be left out because you've lost somebody. I wouldn't have thought of that, Michelle. That's a really good point. And it says to the widow, she actually writes in there, if you're going to invite a widow or widower, give them a room for plus one because they might bring a friend. Yes. So I thought that was a really nice list. Yeah, no, that's a great list. 
So you've done quite a bit for you. You uh, want to help others. It's, you know, obviously you're a GP as part of your profession. You help people professionally. But even personally, you know, you want to help others on a similar journey, which is why you wanted to do this podcast. How do you look after yourself through this process? I think helping others is like helping myself as well. So each time I speak with someone that I'm helping, I'm reminded that my trajectory through this grief process may be different to them, but still similar enough that I'm not alone in this. Mm -hmm. And that tragedy befalls anyone, regardless how wonderful you are of a human being. In the act of helping someone, I also learn to respect boundaries and space, recognize that to be there for someone is a privilege, but they're also sorting out their own pile of complexities. So to look after myself, I spend time watching predictable and comforting comedies. And this is actually a recognised way of people relieving their anxieties, watching comedies or familiar shows that don't have really dramatic outcomes is actually quite a soothing way. And they found that in the pandemic, young people have resorted to watching shows like The Office, which I'm a big fan of, the American version, don't judge. (laughs) Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Parks and Rec, yep. those shows are short, sweet, wholesome <laughs> and very predictable. So I find it really comforting to re-watch them over and over again. And, and you don't have to think massively. No. You know? I mean, I worked in TV for 20 years, so people would often say, why would you watch that? Well, because sometimes you don't want to think or sometimes you want to laugh and you don't want to be constantly challenged with a Four Corners story. Yeah. <laughs> Or the dramas in like Homeland, you know? Yes. I don't need that anxiety. No, that's um, right. Great show. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also sew clothes, I read, I spend mindful time patting my puppies. I've got a Kelpie cross and a Shetland Sheepdog cross. Yeah. And I play with them. I spend time out in nature, running, swimming in the surf. And I'm definitely taking Sean's advice to me to be very gentle on myself. Expect less. So. And that means I'm not the high-powered, driven, aspiring surgeon anymore. My life is different. Tragedy has shifted the ground underneath me. And I have permission to be imperfect. Oh. And, and yeah, that's that's been quite a process of self-discovery. Mm. Um, I've also taken on a new sport of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Ah. And the training and, and the practical aspect of self-defence are giving me confidence to keep my head up, even when I'm struggling. Mm. You are a GP registrar and it must be quite confronting sometimes, though, for you dealing with patients who are going through very similar to what you've lived with Sean. So how do you cope with preparing a patient for a similar situation? It is my job and training to communicate well and deliver bad news tactfully. Um, In a previous life as a surgical registrar, I remember holding family meetings to inform loved ones of irreversible bad news. And I am human and it is hard to walk away from those situations without being affected. I find it because it's my job and the way that my brain is structured, I have been able to compartmentalise and to recognise that what they're going through is their life. It is not mine mm. um, to take up as a mental load. And this strict delineation in my brain is pretty hardwired. And I think that's how I've survived so many confronting events um, I've witnessed in my career so far. Um, I kind of don't want to touch on them, but there's been, for people who know me, that, you know, I've had a pretty 
interesting journey so far. Mm-hmm. However, I have access to a psychologist and she is actually, her name's Angela and she specializes in trauma. And um, so she's helped me unpack and help me process some of my past traumatic events. Mm-hmm. And talking about all these things with a professional is vital. And I think gone are the days of hiding and what hiding what you're suffering from or have witnessed to appear strong and then turn to unhealthy vices. So yeah, I in terms of preparing for a patient, it is my job um, to sort of let them know that it, it is terrible you're in this position here's what we're going to do and I'll be here for you in my capacity as part of my job. And I think that that drawing lines as well as communicating well helps. Yes, yes. I don't think it, it's a constant work in process, I must say. Um, and I think in situations or medical situations, it is difficult to feel secure because there's so much uncertainty and you turn to a professional thinking you must know what to do. And sometimes I I know that our oncologist did the best he can. There was no way the man was going to be able to perform miracles. Like I didn't expect that of him, but I sort of, at times I sort of put myself in his shoes. I'm like, you know what, you've got a really tough job. Like you are seeing a, a young patient with an aggressive cancer and you have only so many things in your in your toolbox mm. and, and and that's it. Like how do you support your patients knowing all this? I, I can imagine being him would be difficult and being an oncologist, you know, as part of the job, you would lose patients. So I actually feel feel for our oncologist and, and our pal care doctor. It would have been very difficult doing their jobs, but it is their job. And I'm sure they had their ways of compartmentalizing and looking after themselves and talking to someone about all the confronting things that they see at work. And and I think the modern medical graduates and young doctors certainly have more more training in being more self-aware and taking care of their mental well-being and drawing good boundaries to guard their own mental health. And I I actually think that that's a positive change for the profession. Yes, this change is certainly good for both the medical professional, but also for their patients and carers. You are Taiwanese, Michelle, and different cultures have different ways of dealing with grief and loss and losing a loved one. How has this impacted you in your journey? So I come from a Taoist, Buddhist, religious upbringing. I must say I'm not particularly religious, but being, I would say I would be kind of like Sean, like do believe something, there's something bigger and beyond us. In, in my religion anyway, that we believe that death is not the end. Um, we believe in spirits and reincarnation. And that dying is part of life and that the person lives on in another form or realm. That suffering is part of life, sickness, old age, grief is just all part of that. Death is a way forward out of suffering. Because of these beliefs and having witnessed death in my life, I find the concept of death very black and white and comprehensible. You're alive, your heart stops, your brain shuts down, then you're dead. Like I kind of just, that's how I 
process it. It's kind of like digital, zero or one. Mm. So that made me really, I was just able to skip the disbelief when he died. The moment that he stopped breathing, he has died, and I immediately accepted that he's no longer part of this world. But this is my experience, and I cannot speak for anyone else who, who witnessed death. It's okay that if you're grieving and cannot believe that your loved one is gone and that's your truth and there is no normal. And then some people, it takes time to process and come to terms with, and that's fine. Just for me personally, I, I just skipped the disbelief part and I've just accepted that death just is. And no amount of questioning, debating, theorizing is going to make it any different to the outcome that I'm looking at right this moment in time. Do you think that's also part of your medical training as well? No, I think it's just being human. Like mm. We've all seen like a pet die. So what's your advice to, to others who may not understand these cultural differences in grieving? I want to just draw back on earlier in the year when Prince Philip died. The world was watching Queen Elizabeth sitting alone at the funeral. The media surrounded her, hoping to catch a glimpse of her outward display of grief, almost hoping somehow she would crumble just a little so we know that she's human. We live in a culture where we want to see expressions of inner feelings in order to validate them being real. And people judge how great someone's grief is by this display. That's how much love or help or care that they can give to them will be based on that. Mm, that's true. So lots of people have commented on how strong I am. They'll say, oh, you're so strong. I'll oh, stay strong. I know they mean well, but it makes me feel obliged to live up to their expectations, be stoic, not disappoint them. And just because I'm not crying in public and I'm holding down a job and I'm contributing to society doesn't mean I'm not grieving. In my culture, we don't do public displays of grief or many emotions. My option is to maintain control of my emotions in public. We have this strong sense of not burdening others with our emotions. And in my experience, it can be problematic as people turn down healthy habits, overeating, indulging alcohol, or wait until emotions erupt at a later date in a form of a, of a conflict or blow up. Mm. One of the things is when you are approaching a grieving person and they might not be grieving in the way that you think they should be grieving, first catch yourself up on that. Say, hey, am I judging them in a way that may not be culturally appropriate? Yeah. Um, and also, if you're not sure, maybe just learn a little bit about that. And I've included a resource in the sheet that will have a good outline of different cultures and how they grieve. My advice to people will be that each person's grief is unique. It is not up to you to judge or debate on how much they love their person by their outward actions or facial expressions. It is deeply personal. If you are not sure, read about it or maybe in a good moment, ask if they're okay and just sort of educate yourself. Just Give your, just pick yourself up on that before you make a judgment. It's easy to do. We're human. We all do that. But just pick yourself up before you make a conclusion. And it comes right back to our point right at the beginning. Everyone grieves differently, don't they? We've touched on this. Grieving doesn't necessarily start the moment a loved one has passed, but can often start 
when the loved one has been diagnosed with a terminal diagnosis. I know you're comfortable discussing this because we've chatted about this offline. Was there a period prior to that diagnosis that you and Sean grieved? I think at the moment of diagnosis, we we started the grief process. Um, And throughout the ordeal, we grieved together and separately. He was a very thoughtful person and just an absolute troop of a human being. So I only saw little bursts of sorrow and regret. He tried very hard to make sure that I was going to be okay when he dies. And he really took it up on himself to protect me um, at every pinch point. Towards the last couple of weeks of his life, we were honest with each other and explicitly said to each other how sad that we will never be parents together to see each other grow old. Oh, it's, I've got my tissues here. I knew this would be hard. It is hard, but it's real. Correct. Um, And to live a life we have built together. We held each other and came back to how grateful we are to have found each other and lived such amazing lives. So as much as I would say he, like, we, we grieved together, we also did it separately in our own little ways. Like I journaled and talked to my psychologist and he played video games <laughs> and talked to his mates and, and his dad was just instrumental in supporting him emotionally. I think he felt more comfortable expressing his feelings to his dad than to me because he really, he just said to me over and over again, he's like, I just worry so much about you when I die, I just want you to be okay. And I know I have no control over that, but I just want that so much. And I think he really just put in, did what he can to make sure I was going to be okay. And that include telling his mates to check on me, which they have. And yeah, it's. Can, can I just say when, when we did the podcast and uh, for the listeners, we do it over zoom because it's easy to see the person, but you obviously only hear the audio and I could see the love between the two of you and his absolute devotion to you was so apparent to somebody who's a complete stranger. I could see it. And I think that's important for you to realize that that came across. Oh, that's, that's, that's nice. That's really nice to hear. Um, one of the things I wanted to say was actually we did couples counseling. If there was anything that we did, that, that was quite interesting because we've never thought about it. Cancer can be really challenging to a marriage because, you know, for him it'll be losing his abilities to help around the house, having to be cared for, relinquishing. Every time he deteriorates, he lets go of little bits of abilities that he has and it, it was so hard for him. But he, at the end of the day, all he has is, is, is his love and one of the things we went through with a psychologist was to sort of have that space to communicate and learn to like write little little love notes that would leave in a jar for us called the harmony jar, which is really like it was very sweet. And I still have that jar sitting around and um, it improved our ability to communicate. And the thing that I found was it made us stronger as a couple and 
at the end of the day, even even though I, kn- I knew he was going to die, we still give in to the marriage, maintain it, make sure it's it's as happy and fulfilling as possible. And that's the thing. Like lots of people think, oh, you get married, it's great, fantastic. No, it's a maintenance thing. You, It's like a little love that you cherish and treasure that you maintain, that you, you know, refresh every now and then. You've got a, a marriage you've got to work at regardless of, don't you? Yeah, but it's a, it's a happy work. Like we've done lots of happy work along the way. So did you and Sean discuss an advanced care directive? Yep. So we engaged in a, a lawyer um, a, a few weeks after his diagnosis and we drafted up a will. Mm-hmm. We did not have an advanced health directive and that's specific to our situation. I think it's a good document to go through if you've never had the opportunity with your loved one to go through their wishes explicitly. Sean and I chatted about this on our many road trips about how what we wish if one of us were to die or get sick like it's a it's a conversation we'll probably touch on every big long road trip so we have that understanding of what what we want um, and what each other would like. We do not want any heroic, futile measures if it's unlikely to improve survival and maintain a dignified quality of life. We engage in palliative care services as early as possible. And I think a lot of terminal patients, I don't like using terminal because it does, it's terminal, I like to say stage four. Anyone diagnosed stage four cancer should engage with a palliative care physician. Earlier, the better. You may not need it. It doesn't mean they'll stop treating you or actively treating you. It means that they can manage your symptoms and help you improve your quality of life. It's important to access that service early. Don't leave it too late. So through the palliative care services, we had a copy called Statement of Choices at Home. It is a very simple A4 one-sided sheet, and um, it outlines his wishes, whether or not he wants everything done, including CPR, whether or not he doesn't want CPR, but he's happy for other more concerning measures like IV antibiotics, IV fluids, or he would like nothing. And that sheet is also really useful to keep at home on the fridge because if your person going through cancer treatment were to suddenly pass away at home and they've got their wishes sorted out, if the ambulance were to arrive at your house, they can look at this document and not perform CPR like your person wished and not do any extraordinary measures if they look like they are about to die. So it's important to have that piece of paper. So practically, Michelle, how did you and Sean then prepare? You've taken us through a few points, but how did you actually prepare for someone passing? The most important thing for us is the admin side of things, and that means what they traditionally say, getting your affairs in order. And that includes If you're a young person and you haven't drawn out a will, it's time to see a lawyer and get a will in place. Accounts and passwords of the person, gifts to certain people, any verbal instructions about your personal matters is a really good thing to do. What you wish to do with your electronic profiles or assets. So make sure that you've got that you can set up access for your spouse or whoever's going to look after your account after you pass away. Make sure they have access to that. Um, Oh, and superannuation. Most super accounts will have a nomination of the person 
to to get in contact with in the event of your death. Most superannuations will have sometimes life insurance attached to them or trauma insurance attached to them. So have a look at what your super actually covers and you can nominate someone as the beneficiary of your superannuation as well. So if you're in the process of preparing, that's something to sort. Emotionally prepare. I don't think any amount of emotional preparation can get you ready to watch a loved one die and imagine a life without them. I know this fact from the beginning, so I focus on the things that I can do or put in place in anticipation that I will be an emotional wreck when he dies. And that means having a psychologist who I have an established therapeutic relationship with, administrative affairs sorted so I can afford to fall apart, advance notice of work to let them know about my situation and communicate when things get tough. Mm-hmm. In terms of advice, I don't feel qualified to give advice. However, things I'm glad that we did is that I said everything I wanted to say to him. I hugged him as much as I could. I took photos, videos, voice recordings. We got a hand casting kit um, to do and we did it five days before he died. We casted our hands clasped together. So it's now sitting and curing underneath the stairs. So I'll have that forever. We had a professional photo shoot as a family um, just after Christmas when he was well from his targeted treatment. He was getting better. And those photos are the ones that you saw on the banners for the last podcast. Yeah, the beautiful ones with the dogs. Yes, that was a wonderful thing to do. Um, We left nothing unsaid. So when he was told that he likely had days to weeks, he sat me down that day after everyone left and he gave me permission to move forward in my life when he dies. He told me that to find love again, to open my heart and how thankful he is that with the opportunity to be husband and wife. Oh, Michelle. He was a wonderful human, but you, my dear, um, extraordinary. And that's an, that's an incredible gift because a lot of people, when someone dies, is finding that, that I wouldn't say closure because you never feel completely like that's the end, but rather having that explicitly said, yeah, I don't feel like I need to take on all this guilt I've been told to not take on this guilt, to go and be happy, to go and love. And I think that's what life is about. It's about the relationship that we have with people, the love and the connections that we form. And to have that explicitly said is such a gift. Oh, a wonderful gift. Death is a way of really distilling down what is important in life. And, and he really, he, he knew what was important in life and, that's that's joy and that's love and the relationship and the experiences. And he just didn't want me to miss out on that, even when he dies. You said something to me um, offline about you will experience loss if you've loved. What was that line? Because it's such a beautiful line. Oh, it's like if you've ever loved, you will lose. It's not a matter of if, but when. And that's the thing. If you love someone, you are you, the the flip side of that coin is there. There will be loss with it. Yes. Whether or not you want it, whether or not you anticipate it, you're ready for it. It will happen. But it doesn't really take away from the fact that if you are loving someone at the moment, keep going, keep enjoying it, and 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 to to treasure it because it is so so rare and. It is the essence of life, I think. 
through if you're someone that's caring for someone with cancer and it looks like they they will pass away um one of the things that even throughout this journey through the losses we held each other in unconditional positive regard and having that make some of the difficult conversations, the encounters, the grief, the feelings that we have. At the end of the day, we know that all we want is what's best for each other. We want each other to be happy. These are such honest, raw, but really beautiful moments you've shared with us today, Michelle. Finally, what would be the three things that you most cherish about Sean? I think it's, it is impossible to boil down our life together to three things to cherish. To be honest, I cherish every moment we had. Through his indomitable spirit, I'm viewing life through a lens where every breath I take is an opportunity to make a difference, to strive for better, to follow my dreams and be kind to others and to actively choose happiness. And, and that's the thing I cherish now. And I don't think that will ever change. And yeah, I, I, I will cherish him for the rest of my life. Mm. Everything. <laughs> Always. Oh. I just want to give you a great big hug through that screen, Michelle. Is there anything else you'd like to say? Yeah, so I have some acknowledgements. Um, oh, I want to first acknowledge my twin sister, Katie. She came all the way back from America on two occasions. First when Sean was diagnosed and second time when it was looking like the targeted treatments were failing. Um, she left her partner for six months all up to be here and to support me. And, and you know, being my twin, I've never felt alone and she was right here for me. So I will cherish that for the rest of my life, what she has done for me. I'd also like to thank my in-laws, my sister-in-law, Rahani, the, the amazing Papa Tony and Andy. Um, they've raised an incredible son who has changed my life for the better. Tony and Andy parented all of us through this cancer fight. And since Sean's passing, they've made it abundantly clear that we're family and nothing will change that. So I love them so much. And they are absolute legends. They're just incredible human beings. And right now they're on their boat tinkering, <laughs> hoping to get it out to sea at some point again. But they've just been absolutely inspirational people. And I look up to them and have so much respect and love for them. Michelle, we always knew this was going to be a really tough podcast. It's so intensely personal, but thank you for selflessly giving your time and sharing this personal journey and experience. Your honesty and rawness in losing a loved one, especially so soon after Sean's passing. From Bowel Cancer Australia, but very much personally from me, we're all thinking of you as you continue to navigate a life without your soulmate. I know Sean would be incredibly proud of you and also to continue his legacy and to find happiness, as you said. So thank you so much for being on the Bottom Line podcast for this very, very important chat. Thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I can't wait to see what the podcast is going to be like and um, I also can't wait to see 
where my life is going to go and what amazing opportunities will arise. And we will come back to you in a little while and explore that because you are part of the Bottom Line podcast family. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Bottom Line podcast. To find out more about bowel cancer or for support or simply to donate, please go to bowelcanceraustralia.org.